Psalm 131, a song of ascents of David. Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty. Neither do I concern myself with great matters, nor with things too profound for me. Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. Okay, we got a wonderful passage this week and then in two weeks, which is um, Numbers chapter 19. It's going to take us only two sermons to get through it. And uh, we'll go a little quicker than I would like to, I think, but uh, uh, everything will at least make sense in the end. This week, we'll get some good pictures of Christ, and then on the final sermon two weeks from now, it really is astonishing. But uh, we're going to have to do it that way because next week will be the Resurrection Day sermon. So here we go. Numbers 19, this is verses. Oh, you know what? Before I read the sermon verses... There's a person that listens online, Kim, Kim Boggs, and she has emailed me and I've responded and the email has bounced back. I tried an old email she had. It's bounced back. So, Kim, I am not ignoring your emails. I have responded and it just bounces back. So email me again. Give me an email that won't bounce back and I will get you the answer that you asked. And I'm so sorry about that. So there we go. We're going to read uh, Numbers 19, 1 through 10. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, this is the ordinance of the law which the Lord has commanded saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they bring you a red heifer without blemish in which there is no defect and on which a yoke has never come. You shall give it to Eliotzar the priest that he may take it outside the camp and it shall be slaughtered before him. And Eliotzar the priest shall take some of its blood with its finger and sprinkle some of its blood seven times directly in front of the tabernacle of meeting. Then the heifer shall be burned in his sight. Its hide, its flesh, its blood, and its offal shall be burned. And the priest shall take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet and cast them into the midst of the fire, burning the heifer. Then the priest shall wash his clothes. He shall bathe in water, and afterward he shall come into the camp. The priest shall be unclean until evening. Then the one who burns it shall wash his clothes in water, bathe in water, and shall be unclean until evening. Then a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and store them outside the camp in a clean place. And they shall be kept for the congregation of the children of Israel for the water of purification. It is for purifying from sin. And the one who gathers the ashes of the heifer shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. It shall be a statute forever to the children of Israel and to the stranger who dwells among them. For the past 10 or 15 years, it has become common news for articles, videos, and discussion boards to claim that the main Jewish figures in Israel have finally found the perfect red heifer for once again conducting the temple rites in Jerusalem. It is claimed that without this, temple worship cannot begin again. This, however, is flawed thinking. The red heifer is noted only now in the book of Numbers. It is completely uncertain when this passage was written, but the fact that it is in Numbers and the tabernacle was set up at the end of the book of Exodus clues us into the fact that the red heifer is not necessary for beginning the temple rites. This is then seen after the first exile when the returnees built the altar of God of Israel in Ezra chapter 3 in order to offer burnt offerings on it. 
The red heifer is never mentioned there. They simply built the altar and offered offerings. The other aspects of the law would have been adhered to according to the established need. One can see from the passage that the red heifer is simply used for purification from sin, but the actual sin it purifies from will not be specified until next week's sermon. We'll talk about it in the sermon, but it won't be specified until the verses of next week's sermon. For now, it is only described how to get to that which is needed for the purification. But this passage is only symbolic of what is coming in Christ. It could not actually accomplish what it was given for. That is seen in our text verse today, which is Hebrews chapter 9. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, he, meaning Jesus, is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. The author of Hebrews says that what we are looking at today simply sanctified for the purifying of the flesh. Beyond that, it could do nothing to truly restore a person to God. The flesh is at war with God as it is perfectly and evidently seen throughout all of the rest of Scripture. Only in the coming of Christ is the promise of the eternal inheritance realized. This is what is such a huge shame about Christians who openly applaud and even financially support the process of building a new temple in Jerusalem, identifying a supposedly perfect red heifer and joining in with the rites and rituals that are being conducted each year in anticipation of the coming temple. To them, it is as if this is what God wants and that we should somehow support it. If that was so, then we would not have the book of Hebrews to cite, nor would we have any of the other New Testament books to read and to celebrate in. The four Gospels, Acts, and all of the New Testament letters are given for the purpose of showing that Christ fulfilled these types and shadows, and in his final act in fulfillment of them, he died. At the same time, he initiated a new covenant which replaces the old. It is true that it is exciting that another temple is coming. Every time I see something happening with it, I get excited. It's amazing to see the implements being constructed and the rituals being practiced. But instead of rejoicing with Israel over these things, we should mourn for them. In their coming, there is nothing more than a continued rejection of what they only anticipated. This will, once again, like so many times before, be evident from an evaluation of this passage, which is found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have one long thought for you today. It is the red heifer. Verse 1, now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, once again, as has been seen a few times, the usual address of the Lord speaking only to Moses is departed from in this verse by including Aaron. This has happened from time to time when there was a need for Aaron to be involved in whatever is occurring, such is the case now. The passage before us speaks of purification, specifically that of purification from defilement, which comes from being physically near death. 
As death is the final result of sin, it is defiling to touch a dead person or even be in the immediate presence of one who dies. Purification from this must be accomplished to maintain holiness. It is not sure when this passage was received, but some speculate that it was actually at the time that the tabernacle was originally erected in Exodus chapter 40. That occurred on the first day of the second month of the second year. In that same month, Numbers 9 says, Now there were certain men who were defiled by a human corpse, so that they could not keep the Passover on that day. And they came before Moses and Aaron that day, and those men said to him, We became defiled by a human corpse. Why are we kept from presenting the offering of the Lord at its appointed time among the children of Israel? Because they were defiled by a corpse, it is assumed by some that this law, now presented in Numbers 19, was already received. That may be so, but it is more likely to be that this is a new thought entirely, coming on the heels of the final words of Numbers chapter 17, which said, So the children of Israel spoke to Moses, saying, Surely we die, we perish, we all perish. Whoever comes near the tabernacle of the Lord must die. Surely we all utterly die. The people had rebelled several times, and many had died during these rebellions. Finally, at the time of Aaron's rod budding, the people realized that death was the inevitable result of their sinning against the Lord, and they were destined to die in the wilderness because of this. In this, they had been promised that all, 20 and above, would die in the wilderness until the generation of the disobedient were consumed. The number of deaths which could be expected on any given day would be in the hundreds. It was already understood, even from Genesis chapter 2, that death is the result of sin and that purification from sin was necessary, or further defilement and death would be the natural result. And so we have a logical progression of thought here. There was a challenge to Aaron's priesthood. That challenge was handled by the Lord in the destruction of the rebels as seen in chapter 16. From there, Aaron's authority was definitively established through the budding of his rod, which was in chapter 17. After that, the care of the Levitical priesthood through the system of tithes and offerings were detailed in chapter 18. There, the possibility of death was mentioned four times in various ways. For example, only the priests could perform the duties in the tent of meeting anybody else would die. The Lord is instructing the people in holiness. Anyone else would die that was not holy. His holiness is what is being looked at and what that means, including the death for infractions against it. Now, in response to the terrified cries of the people that whoever comes near the tabernacle must die, the Lord is providing this passage concerning the cleansing of the people from the stain of sin, which is related to death. They could, in fact, approach the sanctuary, but not the tabernacle. The boundaries had been set, but even those who came near the sanctuary to offer an offering must be pure. Because the tabernacle of the Lord extends logically to cover the entire congregation, the people needed to maintain a state of purification from death. This, then, is the reason for the placement of the passage here. In chapter 17, the cries of the people's words, "'Whoever comes near the tabernacle of the Lord must die.'" A response is now given. In verse 13 of this chapter, we will read this. Whoever touches the body of anyone who has died and does not purify himself defiles the tabernacle of the Lord. In both, the rare term Mishkan Yehovah, or tabernacle of the Lord, is used. 
to be an Israelite dwelling in the Lord's presence and to not be purified from the stain of death would defile the Mishkan Yehovah. The problem of that is dealt with now. Verse 2, this is the ordinance of the law. Zot chukat ha-Torah. This enactment, the law. It is a very rare phrase which combines two common words, chukat, or statute, and Torah, meaning law or instruction. The two words together in this manner are only seen here and in Numbers 31, verse 21, where purification is again the subject, including the type of purification mentioned right here in this passage. For this combined form, John Lang provides a general meaning. He says, we would read an ordinance for securing the Torah. Without this expedient, for instance, the law of purification would have occasioned endless offenses on the right hand and on the left. In other words, the word Torah or law here is an all-encompassing statement concerning not any given law, but the law of Moses itself. In order to secure the law and keep it free from constant defilement in the people, this statute is now being enacted. Verse 2 continues, which the Lord has commanded, saying... Now the chukat ha-Torah, or enactment of the law, is said to be tziva, or commanded by the Lord. There is a definite importance being ascribed to what will be presented. It is binding on all people because it is a part of the mutually agreed-to covenant between the Lord and his people. The Lord, speaking to Moses and Aaron concerning this guidance commanded by the Lord, tells them to, verse 2 continues, speak to the children of Israel. This is then surely in direct response to what they had said to Moses, which included Aaron as the recognized high priest. Number 17, 12 again. So the children of Israel spoke to Moses saying, surely we die. We perish. We all perish. The children of Israel spoke to Moses in terror. The Lord will now speak to the children of Israel through Moses and Aaron concerning instruction on how to avoid that terror. Verse 2 continues, that they bring you. The word you here is second person singular. It thus explains the inclusion of Aaron more fully. What is to be brought is probably not to be brought to Moses. He is the lawgiver, and that job is a one-time position which will not be repeated during the period of the time of the law. Rather, it is to be brought to the high priest, whoever he is, that fills the position. Aaron is representative of the position. <laughs> Verse 2 going on. A red heifer without blemish. Para aduma temima. Heifer red without blemish. The obvious questions which arise from this are one, why a heifer? Two, why red? And three, does without blemish qualify the color red, meaning entirely red, or is it without blemish being expanded upon by the coming words concerning no defect? The Hebrew could actually go either way. Some scholars look to this as a symbolic rejection of the rites and rituals of Egypt. The heifer was sacred to the Egyptians, and so only bulls were sacrificed there. Specifically, they sacrificed red bulls to their demon god, Typhon. Thus, in using a red heifer, they would be rejecting the rites and the practices of Egypt. I have to tell you, that is not sound reasoning. The Lord is not asking his people to look back on and reject Egypt. 
He is, as always, giving types and pictures of Christ to come. The specificity of the red color is the only time that such a requirement is made in the entire sacrificial system. At all other times, the type and sex of the animal are specified, but never the color. The color Adom, or red, is given as a direct tie to Adam, or humanity. The name Adam and the word man, or Adam, come from the word Adom. Both the verb and the noun signify red. It is either the state of being red or the action of making red. Esau was called Edom because of the Adom, or red soup. That was the only time the noun had been used until this point in scripture. Remembering what that story pictured, if you do, it connects us to this requirement right here, right now. The verb form was used in the construction of the tabernacle with the ram skins dyed red. It is seen 10 times, and it comes from the idea of being made red or to show blood in the face. The use of those ram skins dyed red pictured Christ's covering of our sins. That is then explained by the use of the verb Adom in Isaiah, where it says these words, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red, Adom, like crimson, they shall be as wool. After this, Paul explains how this points to Christ in his second letter to the Corinthians with these words, for he made him, meaning Jesus Christ, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The red looks to Christ the man, formed out of the earth, and thus it made possible his sacrificial work on our behalf. As for it being a heifer, meaning a female, the word para or heifer is the feminine of par, a young bull or a steer, which we saw many times in the book of Leviticus. That is associated with the word parar, meaning to break forth or frustrate, and thus to break, such as in a covenant, or to annul it. As this is for purification from sin, the idea of destroying its effect is an obvious connection to that. That it is a female looks to the initial cause of sin in man. Not actual sin, but what precipitated it. Here's what it says in Genesis 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. That is then explained by Paul in the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 2. And Adam was not deceived. But the woman being deceived fell into transgression. It is the woman who was deceived through her weak nature. Christ came born of a woman and bore the same weak nature that all humans possess. That is explained by the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 5. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray since he himself is also subject to weakness. That it is a heifer looks to Christ the man who came subject to weakness and his sacrificial work on our behalf. Earlier, it was questioned concerning the word temima or without blemish. Does the word qualify red or is it qualified by the word no defect? In other words, does the word best translate as without blemish, meaning pure red, or does it best translate as perfect, meaning without defect? First, 
all traditions, all of them hold that it qualifies red. And there's no obvious reason to go against that. Further, that there is no other sacrifice where the specific color is designated would certainly argue for the word qualifying red. Not only is it to be red, but it's to be holy red. However, the word mum or defect in the next clause is used to qualify and explain the word tamim or without blemish elsewhere, such as in Leviticus 22 verse 1. And whoever offers a sacrifice of a peace offering to the Lord to fulfill his vow or a free will offering from the cattle or the sheep, it must be perfect, tamim, to be accepted, and there shall be no defect, mum, in it. Without being dogmatic, because we're speaking of a heifer and not a dog, I would, after talking it over with Sergio, go with the latter. Red is specified without any other word which could very easily have translated it as holy, thus indicating totally red. The picture of Christ's humanity is sufficiently described with the single word Adom, or red. It is not his humanity that takes away our sins. Rather, it is his perfect humanity, which does. Because of the specificity of perfection of the peace offering and that it should be without defect as well, it is sufficient for us to consider the same right here. And that then is actually revealed as what is necessary to picture Christ in the New Testament with these words from 1 Peter chapter 1. Knowing that you, meaning you believers, were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by the tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. It is not any man that can take away sin, but a man without blemish, meaning perfect, and without spot, meaning defect or defilement. The huge number of traditions which have been heaped up by the Jews concerning single white or black hairs of this red heifer, making it unacceptable as a sacrifice, have not highlighted the obvious pictures of the coming Christ, but rather they've only diminished them. That it is without blemish looks to Christ, the sinless man, and his sacrificial work on our behalf. Verse 2 continues, in which there is no defect. Ain ba mum, not there is defect. As we just saw, this certainly qualifies and further explains the words without blemish. Christ came in perfection. He lived in perfection, and he died in perfection. That the red heifer had no defects looks to Christ, the perfect man, and his sacrificial work on our behalf. Verse 2 going on, and on which a yoke has never come. Lo Allah aleha ol. Not which has gone up on a yoke. The ol or yoke is a picture of bondage. It comes from a root meaning to affect thoroughly. This perfect red heifer without defect was also to have never been yoked. The idea of a yoke on an animal is subjection. On a person, it then conveys the idea of degradation. It would be unbefitting of the purposes of the rites for which this heifer is to be used for it to have been placed under a yoke. But more, this looks to Christ who, though born under the yoke of the law, was born sinless under that yoke. In other words, the law is a yoke because of sin. For one who is sinless and who remains sinless There is no yoke of bondage. There is no subjugation to sin. Thus, what will happen with this heifer for the people will look to what Christ does for his people. 
Matthew 11:28 through 30 says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Everybody see the symbolism? The law is a yoke, but it's not a yoke on Christ because he was without sin. In addition to his state under the law, this not being yoked is certainly explained in Christ's voluntary service before the Lord. As a yoke implies bondage and forced labor, an animal that has never been yoked has lived free from such constraints. Such was true with Christ, as the author of Hebrews explains it in Hebrews chapter 10. Previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once for all. Christ voluntarily came to do God's will, and he voluntarily placed himself under the law. His sacrifice replaced these very sacrifices which are mentioned under the law. This is because his covenant replaced the covenant through which they came. What could never actually bring God pleasure is replaced by that which pleased God the most. That this is a red heifer and it was never yoked looks to Christ, the sinless man, and his sacrificial work on our behalf. Verse 3, you shall give it to Eliezer the priest. The name Eleazar essentially means whom God helps. He is the third son of Aaron, but the oldest remaining son. The very use of his name looks to the work of Christ. Whom God helps, he helps through Christ. The son, not Aaron, goes because there will be a resulting defilement from the performance of these duties, as will be seen in verse 7. As Aaron was never to allow himself to become defiled in this manner, the right is transferred to the son. It is again reflective of Christ, as is recorded by Paul. I've read you this once already. I'm going to read it again. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The son became unclean through the right. God's son took on our uncleanness through his work. For now in Numbers, it is this son who is to receive the heifer. Verse 3 continues, that he may take it outside the camp. Outside the camp is where there's defilement. It is where those who are unclean are sent. It is where the world at large is, as this was to be for the cleansing from defilement caused by death. And as death is the result of sin, the animal and its death were not taken to the altar for sacrifice, but outside the camp, away from the presence of the Lord. The connection to Christ is obvious from Hebrews chapter 13. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. The sanctification of the people was accomplished by the Lord as he hung outside the gate of Jerusalem. Every word so far has shouted out the magnificent wonder of what Jesus Christ did for his beloved people. Verse 3 continues, and it shall be slaughtered before him. The subject in the clauses is indefinite that may take it outside and shall be slaughtered. This is because it was not the priest who slaughtered the animal, but rather it was someone unspecified. 
The reason for this is that though man led Christ outside the city, and though man crucified Christ, it was God who ordained that it should be so. The picture of Abraham leading his son to be sacrificed on Mount Moriah as being typical of God the Father and God the Son once again comes to light here. But the animal is slaughtered before the priest who then testifies to his death. This is seen in Matthew 27 where it is noted that the chief priests stood and witnessed the crucifixion of Christ. Verse 4, And Eleazar the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and sprinkle some of its blood seven times directly in front of the tabernacle of meeting. With the sacrifice of the animal complete, Eleazar was to take some of the blood of the heifer and Nazah, or sprinkle it seven times toward the face of the tent of meeting. He actually would do this from the place outside the camp, not in the sanctuary. As he is considered unclean, so he remains defiled until evening. With this act of sprinkling, the blood of the heifer, meaning the death of the heifer, becomes an actual sacrificial offering to the Lord. Thus, Eleazar, or whom God helps, is representative of Christ, who is equated to the finger of God in Luke 11, verse 20. The word finger, or etzba, comes from another word, tseba, which indicates dyed materials, and thus one gets the idea of grasping something. Therefore, the finger is that which accomplishes a task. The creation is said to be the work of the Lord's fingers in the 8th Psalm. But the Bible also records that the creation is accomplished through Christ. Thus, in this verse, the shed blood is Christ, the innocent substitute and sacrifice. Eleazar is Christ the priest. The finger is Christ who accomplishes the work of purification. The seven sprinklings are the perfection of Christ's blood being presented before God as an acceptable purification from sin resulting from touching that which is dead. Everything is about Christ here. Then the heifer shall be, verse 5, burned in his sight, its hide, its flesh, its blood, and its offal shall be burned. This is the same thing that was to be done to the sin offerings of the anointed priest, the sin offering for the entire congregation, the sin offering for the ordination of Aaron and his sons, and the sin offering on the Day of Atonement. This is not a picture of Christ's sufferings. The animal is already dead. This reflects something entirely different. And further, this is the only time that blood is said to be burnt as a part of the sacrifice. The word used here for burn is saraf. It is the word used, for example, when burning a leprous garment. It is never used in the sense of an offering. Rather, it more reflects the rejection of the thing and a divine purification through incineration. It is a picture of the consequences of sin, the lake of fire. The body of Christ became an unclean thing before God in order to purify man from the stain of death. And so even this verse completely and wholly pictures Christ and his sacrifice for us. Next, verse 6, and the priest shall take cedar wood. Now the priest is instructed to take certain things. It is similar to that which was seen in a particular ritual back in Leviticus 14. The first item is etz eretz, or wood cedar. The word eretz is derived from a root which means to be firm or to be strong. It is the same word used to describe the cedars of Lebanon and even the cedars of God in the 80th Psalm. Thus, they are large, magnificent, firmly fixed trees. 
This part of the right indicates permanence. It carries the strength of the process. It is symbolic of Christ who is the strength of God for salvation. As Paul says in Romans chapter 5, for when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 6 continues, and hyssop, ve'ezov, or and hyssop is taken as well. The word hyssop that we use today comes from the Hebrew through the Greek. In Greek, it is husopos, a transliteration directly from the Hebrew, ezov. You can hear the similarity in all three, ezov, hysopos, hyssop. It is an herb which is native to the Middle East and elsewhere. It has antiseptic, cough-relieving, and expectorant properties. And because of this, it is used as an aromatic herb for medicine. It is a brightly colored shrub with dark green leaves. During the summer, it produces bunches of pink, blue, or more rarely, white, fragrant flowers. It is contrasted to the cedars in 1 Kings chapter 4, showing its diminutive size. Here's what it says there. He spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. Also, he spoke of trees from the cedar tree of Lebanon, even to the hyssop that springs out of the wall. He spoke also of animals, of birds, of creeping things, and of fish. Whereas the cedar denotes firmness and strength, the hyssop denotes humility. Other than the one instance given by Solomon, it is always in the Bible used in conjunction with purification. Paul shows us how this humble plant used in purification looks forward to Christ. Here's what he says in Philippians chapter 2. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. Here it is. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So you have the cedar, his strength. You have the hyssop, his humility. Verse six continues. And scarlet, ushne tolaat, or and scarlet of the crimson grub worm is to be brought. The implication is scarlet yarn. Two words are used here to describe the color. The first is shani, which means scarlet. The second is tola. This is actually a worm known as the crimson grub. However, it is used only in this manner concerning the color from it, and cloths dyed with it. Taken together, they are translated as scarlet, but implying the scarlet which comes from the tola or grub worm. The scarlet or red in the Bible pictures and symbolizes war, blood, and or judgment. In this case, it is judgment, as in judgment on sin. Thus, the shnetolaat, or scarlet of the crimson grub worm, pictures Christ, who is described by this same word, tola, in the 22nd Psalm, a psalm about the cross of Christ. Here it says, but I am a worm, a tola, and no man a reproach of men, and despised by the people. The judgment is what happened at the cross of Christ, and this is what the scarlet signifies here. As repeated from an earlier sermon that I gave you, a description of this crimson dye, which is obtained from the tola, is given to us by Henry Morris. When the female of the scarlet worm species was ready to give birth to her young, she would attach her body to the trunk of a tree, fixing herself so firmly and permanently that she would never leave again. 
The eggs deposited beneath her body were thus protected until the larvae were hatched and able to enter their own life cycle. As the mother died, the crimson fluid stained her body and the surrounding wood. From the dead bodies of such female scarlet worms, the commercial scarlet dyes of antiquity were extracted. What a picture this gives of Christ dying on the tree, shedding his precious blood that he might bring many sons to glory. He died for us that we might live through him. After this, the priest is instructed, verse 6 continues, and cast them into the midst of the fire burning the heifer. The body of the unblemished and defect-free red heifer has all of these things, representing the attributes of Christ cast into the fire with it. Think of it. The perfect sinless man who died in weakness is described by what these articles imply. The casting of them into the fire with the body is signifying exactly that. His perfections are what are being consumed with his body so that purification for any who have come into contact with death may be purified from that. As all have sinned, all have come into contact with death. But the purification of Christ is sufficient to cleanse any and all who will receive what he accomplished for them. Verse 7, then the priest shall wash his clothes. He shall bathe in water and afterward he shall come into the camp. The priest shall be unclean until evening. This is now another note of uncleanness in the process. There was the taking of the animal outside the camp. There was the death of the animal, meaning its state in death. There was the burning of the animal in its entirety. Through these unclean things, the priest is made unclean. Think of it. The process which is given to cleanse the people from the sin of death in turn makes the attending priest unclean, implying that touching the blood used in the rite of sprinkling, meaning the proof of death, has made him unclean. How can it be that purity can come out of that which is unclean? Because of this, he was required to accomplish certain rites of purification already laid out in Leviticus. The washing of the garments, the bathing in water, and waiting until evening were all required. The reason for the uncleanness lasting until evening is because the evening is the start of a new day. Thus, a picture of the work of Jesus Christ is made. Through the death of Christ, man enters into a new day, capital D there, where all things are made new. It doesn't matter if a person is made unclean 20 minutes after evening, meaning that he is unclean for 23 hours and 40 minutes, or if he is made unclean 15 minutes before the evening. In Christ, one is cleansed for the new day. Verse 8, and the one who burns it shall wash his clothes in water, bathe in water, and shall be unclean until evening. As the priest is made unclean through the rite, so is the one who burns the heifer made unclean. He too must wash his garments, bathe in water, and remain unclean until evening. Think of it. The process which is given to cleanse the people from the sin of death in turn makes the one who conducts the burning of the animal unclean, implying that the burning of the animal causes uncleanliness. How can it be that purity can come out of that which is unclean? Verse 9, then a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer. Now a clean man is specifically called in to gather up the ashes of the heifer. The implication is that the other people who are unclean cannot conduct this part of the rite without somehow defiling the ashes. 
This is only the second time that Ephor or Ash has been mentioned in the Bible. As normal, in the Hebrew, the word is singular, ash. Your Bible says ashes all the way through the Bible. It doesn't say that in Hebrew. It says ash. It, ash, is what remains of a thing. And thus, it represents the whole. Ash carries a couple of ideas. First, it reflects judgment. As when Abraham said, I am but dust and ashes. He was indicating that he was created from the dust and all he deserved was being reduced to ashes in judgment. It also carries the idea of mourning, as when one puts ashes on their head to reflect the state in which they feel they exist. Thus a clean person was to come and collect the ashes. Verse 9 continues, and store them outside the camp in a clean place. The ashes which were collected by a clean person are to be stored outside the camp, not inside the camp. However, they were to be kept in a clean place outside the camp. This implies that they would defile the camp if they were brought in. How can it be that purity can come out of that which is unclean? Verse 9 continues, And they shall be kept for the congregation of the children of Israel for the water of purification. Here the term is leme nida or for water of impurity. It signifies water by which impurity is removed. The ashes would be taken and mixed with water and then used to purify. This process will be described in the verses ahead. It is then further described as, verse 9 continues, it is for purifying from sin. Chatat he, or sin, it. Here the word sin signifies the offering for the sin. It is what takes the place of the sin, and thus it is called sin. It is reflective then of Christ who became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. Verse 10, and the one who gathers the ashes of the heifer shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. Like the attending priest and like the one who burned the heifer, this person who was clean and who then gathered up the ashes for cleansing of those who are defiled by the state of death has become unclean and will remain that way until evening. Think of it. Collecting the ashes of the heifer, which is given to cleanse the people from the sin of death, in turn makes the one who collects them unclean, implying that the ashes carry uncleanliness. How can it be that purity can come out of that which is unclean? Verse 10 finishes with, It shall be a statute forever to the children of Israel and to the stranger who dwells among them. Here, it is acknowledged that this rite of purification applied to both the children of Israel and to the stranger, meaning the foreigner who dwelt among them. And it applied for the entire time of the Mosaic law. As long as the law existed and until it was replaced by the new covenant in Christ, it remained in effect. As the typology points to Christ, it indicates even from the Mosaic law that cleansing from such impurity was intended for both Jew and Gentile. The question has been asked several times, how can something that defiles bring about cleansing? As a matter of fact, there's a tradition that Solomon, who answered every question that every person ever asked, could not understand the mystery of the red heifer. And the reason why is because he did not know the mystery of Christ. Now, that's a tradition. It's not in the Bible, but I thought I'd share that with you.
again and again, being physically in contact with each part of the right brought about a state of uncleanness. And yet it is the very substance produced in this process of death, which then is given as the only thing to purify from contact with the dead. How is this possible? The answer is, of course, found in Christ. In Christ's death, he took upon himself all of the sin of the world, becoming, as we have already heard three times, I know I wrote twice there, it's three times, sin. His body became the very thing that could cleanse us of our sin. But because his body was dead, literally and truly, it was considered unclean under the law of Moses. Anyone who touched it would be rendered unclean, and yet in the completion of his work, meaning being found sinless before the Father, he was raised to eternal life. In this, our sin, which was imputed to him, was washed away, and his body, which had died and which was deemed unclean, became the only true way of cleansing humanity from the defilement caused by death. As John Lang says, death was put to death by this death of the most perfect, blooming life. As all humans have been born with sin, all have had contact with death, and therefore only Christ can purify us from what this red heifer anticipated. Everything under the law was external and shadowy. It could not actually cleanse from sin, nor could these things actually bring the unclean to a state of purity. They looked ahead to him, and in him is found the fulfillment of the many types, shadows, and pictures found in today's beautiful passage. And so I'd like to take a minute, because we're coming up on Resurrection Day, that we need to remember that before the resurrection came the cross. Any person can die on a cross. People have died on crosses throughout human history. It's happened even in the past hundred years when the Armenian genocide came about and the Muslims took Christians and crucified them for miles on crosses. Go look on the internet, type in Armenian crucifixions and you'll see pictures of them going all the way down there. Anybody can die on a cross and not one of those people can take away our sin. Not one of them. Why? Because we already have sin in us. You can't take something that's unclean and make something else clean out of it. That is not possible unless... That which was made unclean is actually without sin. And that's what's being pictured in the red heifer today. It's a mystery that could not be comprehended in any way, shape, or form before the coming of Christ. And even in the coming of Christ, people can't get this right. They can't seem to understand the mystery of the red heifer. And so they applaud Israel looking for a red heifer without any white and black hairs on it, as if that's the cure to their problem. That's not the cure to their problem. That is another symptom of their problem. They've got seven more years, just as the Bible says, they're going to go through the tribulation period and two thirds of them are going to die in the process. And then they're going to realize that we missed the ball. We missed what that red heifer only pictured. And they're going to call out to their Lord. Today is Palm Sunday. He said, when you call out, Baruch Hashem Adonai, I'll come back to you. Well, that same week he went to the cross and he died on the cross of Calvary. And he took on the sin of the world. And we're going to be having that in our lives this Friday, remembering that instance. But after that, he stayed in the grave. And on the third day, the Bible says that he was raised to newness of life. He was raised by the power of God. He is the first fruits to God. And the first fruits means that if there is a first fruit of a harvest, what does that mean? 
There's a big harvest coming. He was the first, and he is going to bring back with him anybody that has died in him or that is alive at his coming. That's a moment called the rapture of the church when we'll be taken up together to meet the Lord in the air. The dead will rise first, and then those who are alive will be gathered together at the same time with him. As crazy as that sounds, I believe it 100% because it is in the Bible, and this word tells us again and again and again about the truth of Jesus Christ. Please, if you've never called on Christ, today is the day of salvation. Now is the time of God's favor. He died and shed his blood so that you could be covered with his blood. When God looks at you, he will see the shed blood of his son, not your sins. Please do it today if you've never asked Jesus to just simply forgive you of your sins. I got a closing verse for you today from John chapter 19. Then... They took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus, because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. Next week is John 16, it's verses 19 through 22. God has something incredible planned. Oh yeah, and oh boy. It's entitled, Your Sorrow Will Be Turned to Joy. That'll be a Resurrection Day sermon, and then we'll get back into the book of Numbers and finish this marvelous chapter. But before we do, and before we close today, I'd like to remind you that the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It may seem at times as if you are lost in the desert wandering aimlessly, but the Lord is there. He's carefully leading you to the land of promise, and so follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you if you'll just allow him to i got a poem for you called the red heifer but before i give that poem i'd like to ask you a question this is a give me folks we've had a lot of yes it is we mentioned the here give me we mentioned the finger in the sermon everybody remember that it is that which accomplishes a task give me one more instance where the finger is mentioned in the new testament just one the finger of God. That's the one that I quoted. He's quoted Luke eleven twenty. He's quoted with the finger of God. But that's okay. If nobody else gets it, you get a Maserati. Anybody think of another instance where the finger is mentioned? When Moses went up on the mountain. No, in the New Testament. New te- yes, New Testament. All the people online are screaming now because they all know. I'll give you. I'll give you a hint. Oh, hey, everybody gets a Maserati. Good job. All right. Yes. As a matter of fact, let me read you uh, one of them. That's what he's writing in there. There's, there's actually one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. I think nine, maybe eight instances. I wrote them all down, but let me just take you to one. We've got John 8, verse 6. Hang on. Let me take you there really quickly. Just because everybody got a Maserati today. I don't know how you figured it out. You're all so smart. John 8, verse 6. Let's see here. Um, John 8, verse 6. It says, um, there it is. This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. The finger accomplishes a task. Jesus was accomplishing a task in a parable form for us. The red heifer. 
Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, these are the words he was to them then relaying. This is the ordinance of the law as I am relaying, which the Lord has commanded saying, speak to the children of Israel that they bring you a red heifer without blemish, whether one or some in which there is no defect and on which a yoke has never come. You shall give it to Eleazar the priest but this is just a prelim that he may take him outside the camp and it shall be slaughtered before him. And Eleazar the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger. I know there's no need for repeating and sprinkle some of its blood seven times directly in front of the tabernacle of meeting. Then the heifer shall be burned in his sight as you have now learned. Its hide, its flesh, its blood, and its offal shall be burned. And the priest shall take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet too, and cast them into the midst of the fire of the burning heifer, so he shall do. Then the priest shall wash his clothes, he shall bathe in water as well, and afterward he shall come into the camp. The priest shall be unclean until evening, as to you I now tell. And the one who burns it shall wash his clothes in water, so he shall do, bathe in water also, and shall be unclean until evening too. Then a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and store them outside the camp in a clean place, and they shall be kept for the congregation of the children of Israel, for the water of purification. It is for purifying from sin, so that of sin there will be no trace. And the one who gathers the ashes of the heifer shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening too. It shall be a statute forever to the children of Israel and to the stranger who dwells among them, as I am instructing you. Lord God, we are even now in a wilderness and we are wanting to be led by you. Without you to direct our lives would be a mess. And so be our guide, O God, you who are faithful and true. We long for the water in this barren land. May it flow forth from the rock, our souls to satisfy. Give us this refreshing spiritual hand and may we take it into our lives daily. It apply and we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ, which cleanses us from all defilement. Thank you that he was willing to come to this earth, live a perfect life, give that perfect life up in exchange for our sins and to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of you in him. What a marvelous story we are being given word by word, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We're being given instruction on wonderful theology of what you had planned since before even the first Adam was created in this universe. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord, and it's in his perfect and beautiful name we pray. Amen. Marvelous. Simply marvelous. So the priest, the gatherer, everybody who had anything to do with the killing of the red heifer. The death itself. unclean. Everything became unclean. Until the new day. Until, well, they became clean on the new day. It's a picture of Christ's new day. But... The ashes are still outside the camp, implying that the camp would be defiled, but they're in a clean place, meaning that place isn't defiled. Right. So everything about it is just kind of odd until yeah. you add in the water and then from the water mixing those, they're sprinkled on the people. And we'll, we'll see that next week or two weeks from now. But the, but the, the, the people who did it were chosen to be in the position That's correct. by God. That's correct. And so Israel, who really did... Is unclean. 
until, until they come to Christ. That day. is exactly right, until the new day. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. And that kind of goes along with Hosea where it says, after two days I will come to you, on the third day I will restore you. It's been two days. A day is a thousand years to the Lord. A thousand years is like a day. Okay, 2 Peter 3, 8 and Psalm 90, verse 4. Okay, they both say the same thing. So two days or 2,000 years, they are unclean. And on the new day, they will be made clean. And we're right at the cusp of the new day. We're right there. Absolutely. Yep.